Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Peony on Magazine Street, exceptional women's and children's clothes and gifts. From NOLA Pizza in the NOLA Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rashidi, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rashidi. Welcome to Out to Lunch. There are certain occupations that most of us would agree take a good deal of skill to perform. Neurosurgeon comes to mind, airline pilot, Cirque du Soleil performer, And then there's the kind of job that everybody thinks they could do, uh, if only they weren't too busy doing something more important. For example, hosting a radio show or writing a book. Everybody can write, and most people believe they've got at least one great story to tell. But if you've ever actually sat down to write a piece of fiction or even nonfiction, you very quickly discover it's not as easy as it looks. And if you do have the discipline and perseverance to write an entire book, whether it's a serious examination of the role of leadership in business or a whimsical uh, examination of the inner life of cats, uh, you then have to traverse the minefield of publishing politics to get anyone to read it. Then, if everything goes right and you're a published author, one of the glamorous things you get to do is to go on a radio show and podcast about business and share your firsthand insightful observations about the state of the publishing industry. That's the situation both of my guests find themselves in right now. Adam Bryant is a New Orleans resident and creator of the popular New York Times column, The Corner Office. Adam wrote the column as part of his 18-year career at The Times. Adam is the author of three books. They're all based in some way on his interviews and consulting work with business people, including his most recent, The CEO Test, Master the Challenges That Make or Break, all Leaders, which was published in 2021 by Harvard Business Review. Adam Bryant, welcome out to lunch. Thank you for having me, Peter. Jim Gabor has been a columnist for the British newspaper The Guardian. He's also a producer and director of music videos, filmed live concerts, and long-form documentaries that literally span the music world from Spinal Tap to Nora Jones. Living in New Orleans for most of his life and sharing his home with cats, Jim hit on an interesting thought. When New Orleans was originally settled by French people, they brought their cats with them. Eventually, the French humans were outnumbered by people of other nationalities, but the French cats remained, well, French. The result of this observation is a book called Miao Monsieur, The French Felines of New Orleans, which was published in March of 2021 by Pelican Publishing. Jim Gabor, welcome out to lunch. Glad to be here. Adam. We're all aware of how the digital world has impacted the film and and music business. YouTube and Spotify have pretty much obliterated the way recording artists have traditionally gotten paid. And in the film business, a month's subscription to thousands of films on Netflix is about the same as it costs to go see one movie in a theater. So we can do the math ourselves on that one. But at least from the outside, book publishers seem to have retained a better grip on revenue. There's no well-known way to steal books online the way you can download songs or movies, and the price of e-books seems to be comparable to the price of regular books. For example, right now on Amazon, the price of your book, The CEO Test, is $25 
for the hardcover and $15 for the Kindle version. You've spent your career writing about business, Adam. You're a best-selling author, and you're the perfect person to explain what's going on here. In the face of the shakeup we've seen in the film and music business, why has the book publishing industry seemingly been able to protect its revenue stream and even expand it? Well, thank you. I wouldn't call myself an expert. Um, I've always been struck by the quirky aspects of the publishing industry. Um, I mean, a couple of observations. I think it is a kind of very old school analog experience to sit down and read a book. Uh, and I think people long for those moments, get away from the screen time. Um, when ebooks started, a lot of people were predicting they were going to sort of, you know, make print books obsolete, but those numbers have trailed off pretty dramatically. And I, and I think the message is clear that people like sitting down with a book or they like listening to it. I mean, you know, we're in the ear of the podcast. We're living that in this moment right now. But, you know, whether on commutes or going for a walk, people like listen to things. And I think just the experience of listening to book to a book is, again, very old school. And it's different from having three screens in front of us and feeling like we're always overwhelmed by challenges of multitasking. Jim, as a director and producer of filmed music events, you've spent over three decades at the intersection of the film and music business. When a film is released, it's marketed on TV and radio and online, and the star of the film appears everywhere from NPR to TMZ. But when it comes to a book being published, uh, apart from Oprah Winfrey and Terry Gross, nobody in the media seems to care all that much, and publishing companies don't seem to spend a lot on advertising. Well-known and successful authors will sit at a table in a bookstore signing books. That seems to be about the extent of the publishing industry's grasp on marketing. Based on your long history of being involved in successful film and music releases, including your Nora Jones concert DVD, which is one of the industry's best-selling live concerts. What do you think the publishing business could learn about marketing from their cousins in the film industry and the TV business? You know, I'm not really sure. My last experience uh, before the plague hit uh, was with a concert film that we'd shot in Los Angeles at the Palace Theater, and it made it all the way to Sundance uh, last January, 10 days before the world shut down. So now I'm not sure what's going to become of it. I think it's, it's destined for the basement of a Netflix somewhere, but it's still it's out there. As far as the book industry, uh, I wasn't really trying to get it. My parents uh, met working in daily newspapers, and they saved their money and bought a small, very small chain of uh, weeklies in central Louisiana. So from the time I was eight till I went away to school at 18, I was in the back shop uh, till three in the morning after school, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, putting out those little newspapers and wondering what really is happening out there with it. Um, this is my first push into this, into print other than that. Uh, and it was all really an accident. Uh, I had been writing for The Guardian for about five years, a monthly column, and uh, my editor came to New Orleans with her husband uh, on a vacation, came by the house and visited, uh, saw the crazy cats and said, why don't you write a story about that one? Uh, so I, I did, and uh, two weeks later, 2.1 million unique reads. They said, more cats. Uh, so I wrote another one that was basically making fun of me writing cat stories, and it still had a million hits. So I, I figured, well, uh, I showed it to my father, who was uh, 102 at the time, <laughs> and uh, he loved it so much, uh, he said, have you got any more? And the next thing I know, 
this little non-literary thing happened. And I kept him amused for the last five years of his life. He was 103, and as I said, the week before he passed, I went to visit him, and he was outside chainsawing down a tree. So he was staying wow. fairly hardy. I like to think the cat stories kept him. I think so. And, you know, people talk about cat ladies, but they never tell about cat men. So it's he a pleasure a, meeting you. Is, uh, <laughs> it, is, uh, it was rather a different thing. <laughs> Adam, your column and your books... Uh, focus on CEOs, and I, I'm just curious, has the role of the CEO changed or the, uh, the leadership style of CEOs? I, I certainly think it has, and you know, just as a bit of context, um, uh, you know, my, I started playing in the leadership sandbox 12 years ago based on a very simple what-if question, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them about their companies? Um, you know, the various strategies and industry dynamics, and instead just ask them about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives and how they think about culture and teams and hiring and career and life advice. So, you know, there was a lot of life wisdom that grew out of that. Um, I've never had a particular fascination with CEOs, you know, being starstruck. I just think they're in positions where they have an ability to learn a lot. I mean, this sort of feedback mechanism of experience is a little more uh, intense when you're um, a CEO. So we are living in this remarkable transformational moment for leadership. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that if you were a CEO, you really had to worry about big, loud institutional shareholders, like they were your probably your biggest external challenge. But I think over the past 14 months, it's pretty, pretty clear like the nature of work has changed, the role of companies in society has changed. In many ways, CEOs have become like politicians. We're seeing this play out in the headlines. They're starting to advocate for things like voting laws. Um, and if you're a CEO is standing on a stage in an all-hands meeting, you have to be prepared for employees raising their hands and saying, what about this? What about the Amazon rainforest? We're selling to the military. Why are we doing that? Employees increasingly feel like they should have not only a voice, but a vote in company decisions and policies. And you literally have to be prepared in the same way a politician has to be prepared to answer any question on anything. The CEOs are now in that moment as well. To be clear, nobody ever feels sorry for CEOs. They're generally handsomely paid for what they do. Um, but the role just has expanded exponentially. You know what I would think is that after the pandemic, um, there would be more focus on succession. I mean, we've all realized just how vulnerable we are. Is, is that been the case? Yeah, and the succession point is interesting because what, what I have heard in all my interviews and the consulting work we do is that prior to the pandemic, if you had asked a CEO, um, rate your leadership team for me. You've got 10 people on your leadership team. Just rank them one to 10. Invariably, what happens is that people show up differently in a crisis than you would expect. The people you think would be rock stars sort of lose their voice and fade in the background. And the quiet person who you wouldn't bet on suddenly is amazing in a crisis. And often that goes back to you know something about their childhood and how much resiliency they have. So as a result of that, to your question, a lot of companies are taking a very fresh look at their succession planning and saying, you know, the horses we were betting on to be the future leaders of the company, we need to rethink those bets. <laughs> now, Jim, you know, I want to get back to what you said a little early about owning a chain of small newspapers. The other person that did that was Warren Buffett. So was, in fact, your father Warren Buffett? No, he was Warren Buffet. He had a small <laughs> Piccadilly that was somewhere <laughs> near there, yes. <laughs> you know, when I first started to take a look at your book, which is terrific, um, 
thing I thought about was the other city that's kind of known for cats is when you go to Key West, um, Ernest Hemingway had those, how many toes do those Polydactyl, cats? yeah, there were six-toed cats. Yes. This is, you know, this is really kind of embarrassing for me. You guys have got such quantities of real-life knowledge. No, but we want best, more on cats. I, I take pictures of people who are talented. Uh, you, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of a secondary sort of person. We're all just faking it. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> uh, you crack that nut, Jim. That's, uh, uh, that's what we feared. There's <laughs> well, I would hope New Orleans will now be known for its uh, for its cats. The uh, one of the uh, things that people I think would be surprised to hear about is that you grew up in Central Louisiana, then you went to L- uh, LSU. But what a rich life! I mean, how did you end up spending so many years in Europe? It uh, it was again more like accidents. Like the the Guardian thing is just part of the, a long string of events that were actually caused by my living in New Orleans. Um, uh, At first you thought, well, as a director living here, uh, you're so far from either coast, people, "Ah," you know. But then the the odd part was that I became associated with the city. And so people would come up and say, this is a really insane project. Get that crazy bastard from New Orleans. And kaboom, it would start (laughs) happening. So it it actually started really big. Gosh, I guess in the uh, in the '80s, I sold a series to ITV, uh, music series, because I was really involved in music. Still, then, I'm a bad bass player, so I take pictures of them. You know, it's, I can stay close to music. And the next thing I know, I had uh, a BBC uh, crew come and say, "We'd like to do a show about the 60th birthday of Fats Domino." So they came in with the with the uh, controller, the president of BBC Two. We went to Fats's house. And uh, Fat said, I won't even talk to you unless you bring money. Literally, they, they got 50000 in cash from the BBC office in New York, brought it here to New Orleans. I went with them over. They showed it to him, and he said, not enough. And they said, well, we'll get, we'll, we won't do cash. Will you okay. be making a similar demand here? Because I, yes, I need yes. to I, I had go a, to the ATM. bag over there. We're gonna, <laughs> More pizza. Uh, yeah. More pizza. <laughs> but the, uh, the upshot was that they still wanted to do something about New Orleans, and it ended up two years later doing a four hours live at Mardi Gras from Rio, Trinidad, and New Orleans that I directed from here. And that uh, it made money, and that kind of led on a on a lot more uh, production in uh, the UK and, and elsewhere. Elsewhere that normally wouldn't get funded in America because Americans don't realize the the, the value of some of the things that make a place like New Orleans worthwhile. Uh, our people here, when I first started, uh, had absolutely no idea who the Indians were, the Mardi Gras Indians, and they were really surprised when I came down and visited with them. They couldn't quite. Oh, who yeah. is this strange little pale guy hanging out on Chapatula Street? It it was it, it was kind of eye-opening all of a sudden to be there in the 80s and 90s when the New Orleans rediscovered itself primarily because of the value put on it by European com- countries. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with authors Jim Gabor and Adam Bryant. Adam, I'm trying to think of all the reasons I love that corner office piece, but often you would bring up um, kind of their personal background, and and then it sort of wove its way into the story. What, what was the? What did you learn about people? Did they all have very diverse backgrounds? Was there something they brought with them? Yeah, and, and it's interesting on the question set. So I, I when I launched that series at the New York Times, I interviewed 
did 525 interviews in a, in a row every week, never missed a week. Um, wow. and, and every week that gave me an opportunity to kind of test new questions because ultimately my goal was to get CEOs off their talking points, right? It was a good day when the public relations person said to me, I couldn't prep my CEO for this interview and that's precisely <laughs> the point. Um, but I did learn over time, I got in this group where I started every interview with the same three questions, which is tell me about when you were a kid, like what were you doing outside of class? Tell me about your parents or whoever raised you, like what did they do? And, um, and then the third question was, how have your parents interviewed your, influenced your leadership style today? And very often, once I had the answers to those three questions, I felt like I got about 85% of the person. Because I, I do think, you know, the concrete's pretty wet when we're younger, and, <laughs> and those sort of early influences really help, um, you know, create somebody who, you know, to somebody might be like a two-dimensional suit, like, you know, kind of a three-dimensional human being. Um, and I would say just in terms of the patterns that I saw, just a tremendous number of CEOs had really tough adversity when they were younger. I mean, the number of stories that I've heard and, you know, the CEOs was part of the terms of engagement for the interview. They had to be candid, open and honest, but they were quite open about sharing stories of growing up with an alcoholic parent, um, you know, an abusive parent and and how that influenced them. Because I think for those top jobs, I mean, as, as much as anything, they're stamina jobs. Like those are three shift days, right? And those are seven day work weeks. Um, and so you always wonder, it's like, what is it about these people that, you know, when, when everybody else is kind of running out of gas, why do they keep going? Um, I interviewed this one CEO. She told me a story when, when she was younger, you know, her father died or got, un, got ill unexpectedly and the, and the family really struggled financially. And I have heard that story over and over. There's two CEOs, I interviewed them back to back and both of them told me the exact same story. Comfortable middle-class lifestyle when they were growing up. Their, their father died unexpectedly at a young age no life insurance. So the family had to rally together, just put food on the table. And they both said the exact same thing. They said, I never wanted to put my own family in that situation again. And so there's this sense of like control that they want over their kind of lifestyle, um, building these kind of financial cocoons around themselves. So I think adversity was a really big pattern. Um, I saw some people kind of hit the parent lottery, just this interesting <laughs> mix of background, you know, like the entrepreneur father, the artist mother, um, you know, very often like the, the sort of IQ and EQ or the analytical and the creative, and you could see that influence. Um, and some people I met just, I, I sort of felt like their skin just existed to contain the volcanic energy. And, you know, business was just kind of a vehicle for them to express that energy. Um, but it has been fascinating. And, and ultimately, while the columns were about leadership, at the end of the day, they're kind of about life. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just learned so much from all the interviews and uh, sort of helped me become a, a year or two wiser than I probably deserve to be. And Adam, you've been so successful. And I want to ask a question that I, this is what I'm being approached on now, is people that maybe grew up middle class, they did very well, and they, just the same sentence you used to it, I didn't want my kids to go through that. Right. But then they hit a point where they think, geez, am I making lazy kids? Maybe the reason I am who I am is because I went through. I mean, Yeah, no, I, I, I call that the parenting paradox, right? Like, you know, you grew up in, you know, if you grew up in tough circumstances, in those tough circumstances, 
you know, made you who you are. Like that, you know, you skin your knee, you fail, you learn all those other things. And there's a little part of you, it's like, I don't want my kids to go through that. Um, but as a result of that, there's this concern that, you know, are you protecting them too much? And, and you know, falling down and skinning your knees in many ways makes you who you are. And look, I think it's a challenge that a lot of parents face. I think some people figure out like whether it's sports or experiences just to put people in those situations where there's this sense of like, you know, all this is bigger than you. Um, and, and I think it's good to, whether it's jobs or sports, just to have experiences where like there's a sense of like, this is much bigger than me. And it's something that you believe in and you invest yourself in, but you know, we could be good through dinner. I mean, this, we could talk all day about this. Hey, Jim, uh, you were a great writer for, I'm going to mention one thing because older New Orleanians are going to just melt about that. You wrote for Grigory, which is every, everybody remembers that so fondly. It was fun. It was a lot of years. Uh, we actually uh, financed that uh, newspaper uh, for the first three years um, on back of the house marijuana sales. Uh, that kept it going. I, you know, no, I'm no sure way. that'll stay on the show. Keep yeah, going. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of overwhelmed. I mean, here's a gentleman, incredible amount of knowledge, 500 of the people who make America move, and I've been bitten by 40 cats, and I get to sit on the same stage. There's democracy, for God's sake. But yeah, Grigory was a, a long time fun, and it was uh, a bunch of friends who, who got together and tried to uh, coming out of weekly newspapers, put together uh, a weekly thing in Baton Rouge, New Orleans. It it got too successful and finally ate itself. Uh, but in the in the meantime, we had we had a, a really great time. It was, I think, uh, more fun because we were such a diverse group of people who really didn't have a clue as to what we were doing. Uh, I was at LSU on a, a journalism scholarship, uh, never took a journalism course. They discovered this in my first semester of my <laughs> senior year and said, okay, that's it. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we had, uh, a, it was, a, there weren't so many tabloid-sized, small weekly newspapers happening. We were right on the cutting edge of it. That was in like 76. And so it, um, it, it was something that I believe was just beginning to open up. And it went from there, I got hired out to, to start doing a weekly uh, television program. And the next thing I know, my life, I was teaching at LSU, photo silkscreen, and, and the NBC people came and said, well, you write for the paper and you're, that's close to film. You can do this to this show for us. And the next thing I know, life went, took a big right-hand turn. Are you uh, just humble or do you think uh, you may be you know, you, you did the right things to get caught up in all this. Yeah, I, I've really always said, I mean, I'm envious of you guys really together. I, uh, I never had a career really it had me. I just kind of paid attention <laughs> and somehow you get pulled along and I'm pretty happy right now. <laughs> Can I jump in with a question? Sure. So, I mean, you sound like you've lived, you packed a lot of living into your life and done a lot of different things. Um, and it also seems, just listening to you, that, that you have the, like, I'll figure it out gene. Like, maybe I've, <laughs> like, maybe I've never done this before, but I'll figure it out. Is that? I think it's just, it's a very sad uh, self-assuredness. You just go forward and hope it's going to be fine. I lost a bit of that when the uh, U.S. government offered me an all-expense-paid uh, Asian vacation, uh, but then, uh, but then when I came back and said, "Oh, I survived that," then I was, I was sure I was on the right road. Hey, um, I remember that that vacation. How was that scheduled? That was a that 
That Asian country was the... No, Korea. Korea. Went through, okay. went through Nam, but ended up in Korea. They had enough clerks in Nam for that week, <laughs> and they sent me... And so I ended up, uh, for quite a while, uh, I did what's called congressionals. I ended up writing letters for the commanding general of the division whenever uh, a, a top sergeant uh, whacked a little PFC down in the, uh, in the, in the trenches. Uh, his mama would write to their congressman uh, who would like send it up the th and it would show up a letter back with the commanding general and so the, they would just give it to me and I would make up something so I, and, send it, and boom, it I, was all taken I care of. I picture Alan Alda and Hawkeye. This uh, is a... Oh, actually, in, do you know that in the first week that I was in Korea, they actually showed that, that film? And it was called then MASH, but because of the film, they changed it, the initials to A-S-A-H, the Armed, Armed Support Army Hospital or something. But they changed the initials because of that movie, even while they were airing it in Korea. <laughs> you know, having people like you in the city, both of you, is, is terrific. And I, I just wanted to sum up why you're back. I mean, you... You actually, Jim, were coming to take care of an aging dad who was very aging. I mean, it lasted a long well, time. Well, I've been, I've been back in the city since 1982 um, and living with my long-legged lawyer. And um, we, we've uh, really found ourselves here. But my dad loved coming here when I even have a picture of my mother and father in the old absinthe bar on their honeymoon night. So, uh, and my dad, when he came down, oh... 15 years ago, we were walking down Royal Street and he pointed up to the sixth floor of the Monteleone. See that corner room there? Uh, eight, eight months, three weeks, and three days after we slept in that room, you came into the world. Oh, so right. That, that is a horrifying conversation. Too much information. I know There's where I came from. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam, you came here and uh, I've heard of this story from others. Your children kind of gravitated here and you just said, what the heck, I'll follow them. No, exactly. Our, our youngest went to Tulane and then moved around and things like that. Um, our oldest was living in D.C. with um, her boyfriend, now fiance. They said, I want to move to New Orleans. So they got down here. The youngest who was in Nashville said, I'm going to join you. So we said, we're going to join you too. So um, I can work from anywhere. My wife was a teacher for 30 years. She's retired now. We got down here last November. Um, and uh, add my name to the long list of people who just love this city. Did you continue your CEO uh, interviews while you were here? Yeah, so um, especially over the past year, I mean, everything's been virtual, right. so in, in some ways it's been more efficient. But um, since leaving the Times in 2017, I work for this consulting firm. We do leadership development at the C-suite level, but I'm still doing a bunch of interviews on LinkedIn um, with CEOs and board directors and others, and so I've been continuing those. How so. cool to have you here. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful. And when this show is over, I'm going to hit you up to speak to the business school. Awesome. So this is going to be great. If you, Just serve me pizza. I'll do anything. <laughs> if you walked into a teenager's bedroom any time in the past 50 years, you would see photos pinned to the wall of pop stars, rock stars, sports stars, movie stars, and today TikTok and YouTube stars. But you would have to visit a lot of bedrooms to find fan photos of authors. What's statistically interesting about this observation is that in 2020, over 750 million books were sold, and that's not including ebooks, which account for another 300 million plus sales. Maybe in the future, AI will write books, but for now, every one of these billion books that were sold in the past 12 months were written by somebody. And yet, despite the enormous popularity, authors are generally not celebrities in our own society. For that reason, 
you can get to meet extraordinarily talented authors at book signings at your local bookstore. And for a couple of slices of pizza, they'll even agree to come on a radio show, for which I am very grateful. Adam and Jim, it's been an honor and a pleasure to meet you. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Really appreciate it. Fun. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been authors Adam Bryant and Jim Gabor. Adam's most recent book is The CEO Test, Master the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders. And Jim's most recent book is Miao Monsieur, The French Felines of New Orleans. I love saying that. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Jim and Adam's books by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show was engineered by Blake Longlinay. And our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. Jones Walker. Walker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Peony on Magazine Street, exceptional women's and children's clothes and gifts. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed. And at MitchellForeman.com.